jumping for joy. Having the vaccine come out is almost like an Independence Day. The first shot in a medical marathon. Some may want to shut you down. We want to pull you up. We've got your back. The governor stops closures. We are enforcing masking. We are enforcing businesses doing the right thing. The locals press on. And that's a challenge because we're going to have to approximately do 3,000 vaccinations a day. Hospital beds filling, COVID deaths rising. A lot of people just don't even have enough money to put food on their table. The red wave gets down to state business. I don't know why uh, I haven't been able to get through to, to him. Call waiting. South Florida mayors get the governor's busy signal. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. Vaccines are underway. The vaccinations are happening right now. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but we are still in the tunnel. As we speak, shipments of newly approved Moderna vaccine are on the way. These are live pictures, as a matter of fact, from Olive Branch, Mississippi, where the FedEx trucks are waiting to take that to different states, different hospitals. You know the first of the Pfizer allotments are in and working for tens of thousands of South Florida medical workers and also elderly residents of long-term care facilities, all most at risk of COVID's devastating effects. And at the same time, new cases and hospitalizations and deaths are on the rise. The first doctor to get the vaccine at Broward Health with Dr. Sunil Kumar, a pulmonologist. He is that hospital's chief of staff. We showed you jumping for joy at getting his shot on Wednesday. And Dr. Kumar joins us now via Skype, we believe. Dr. Kumar, are you there? Yes, you are. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Dr. Kumar, I have to say, I think you lifted everyone's spirits who saw you jump up on your chair after you got your thought. What, what was in your mind and your heart when you got the shot? Well, obviously, I was very excited. And uh, yeah, I mean, me, along with uh, a lot of our healthcare heroes, they've been waiting for this moment for a long time. So I guess I couldn't hold back on my emotions. And you made for some good TV also, so thanks for that. <laughs> Dr. Kumar, there is um, so much excitement, a little bit of relief, a lot of hope, but there are also a lot of questions that people have still about the vaccines, the ones here, those to come. So as a medical professional, hopefully you can answer some of those. And I think one of the big ones is the FDA approved this for what they call emergency use. How, explain to us, how does that differ from general approval? What should the public know about that particular decision? So, so, so if, you, if, if you have to go back and look at this entire pandemic, it's a, the whole thing is a new process. So all the therapeutics that we have so far for COVID-19, everything came out as an EUA, except remdesivir, actually got approved as a therapeutic. So as we find more and more evidence that uh, this vaccine is uh, efficacious, the same as the study, they will eventually approve this as a, as a preventive vaccine. Till that time, I think we are going to continue with this. But at the same time, uh, you know, we, we, we had to be very clear about the study. I mean, science is, 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 is there. I mean, they didn't cut any corners. I think the study was done through three different phases and the efficacy is there. So I, I won't be worried about 
you know, whether it's an EUA is already approved vaccine. I think I think it's a good vaccine. Yeah. Dr. Kumar, what is your advice to anyone who is nervous, anxious about taking this vaccine? We know that the statistics, the polling we've seen show that now a little more than 60 percent of Americans say, yes, they're going to take it. But to be effective, there really has to be roughly what? 70 percent of Americans for this to be very effective. Right. So to, to get good immunity for the whole country, we need to get up to 70 to 75 percent. So part of that is, uh, you know, from the beginning of this pandemic, there was, there's been a lot of misinformation. So as healthcare providers, I feel along with me and the rest of the people, I think we have a moral obligation to make sure we convince everybody else to take the vaccine. And that part of that was my reasoning of taking this vaccine first. And, uh, you know, I'm continuing to talk to all my providers here in the hospital and outside the hospital so we can encourage everybody to take this vaccine. So now Broward Health and other South Florida hospitals are going to be receiving this new shipment of Moderna vaccine. Uh, also, like Pfizer is going to be a two shot process. Um, and then by January, we may have the, the third uh, one shot process. C can you lay out what the differences are in these vaccines? Because they're all targeting the same thing. And whether, you know, there have been questions that I've heard about, well, I'm going to wait for the third one or I'm going to take the first one. Is there any differences between them that, that, are, that, that matter? So between the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, there should not be any difference. The technology is the same. I think some of the concern that people have is, you know, we talk about mRNA vaccine. mRNA is, a, is not a new technology. mRNA technology has been studied in humans starting back in 2011. We have done many studies in cancer research using mRNA technology. Can you explain so, what that is? What is mRNA mean? <laughs> So it's a, it's a piece of the genetic information that we collected from that virus protein. So the virus has multiple proteins in it. So one of the protein is a spike protein. That's what the vaccine, I mean, the virus uses to attach to a cell and produces multiplication and everything. So this vaccine is made up that messenger RNA, which is a memory for that spike protein and we developed the vaccine out of that. So it's not, it's different than the previous vaccines because usually we use live attenuated vaccine. That means you suppress the effect of the virus and use such particles to create vaccine, or we use dead viral particles. So here actually it's even better in the sense the, the, a tiny portion of that virus, which is a spike, and we take a protein out of that and we created this vaccine. So it should have much less side effects compared to a theoretical process. And I think the effect should be pretty good. I love that science lesson. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thank you, doctor. Uh, Dr. Kumar, l let me ask you, I think everyone understands that people like you, nurses, doctors, other people who respiratory therapists, people who are in contact with patients suffering from COVID-19, you deserve these first vaccinations, no question. But then you get into the question of essential workers. And I'd just like to ask you, who are, in your view, 
essential workers? Are they people like cafeteria workers at your hospital or Uber drivers or bus drivers or who, who are essential workers? You know, we, we, we always keep thanking the uh, healthcare workers or the healthcare heroes, but there are a lot of heroes out there. Like you mentioned, uh, in the cafeteria workers, the, the grocery uh, stores right. out there, anybody who comes in contact with common population, and they are the reason we were able to survive outside the hospital. So I think they're all considered, they all should be considered uh, heroes, and they all should be considered in this in the initial phases of this vaccine. I have another question going forward about the science of it. We've been hearing that the coronavirus is mutating. I mean, what we've been through for the past year, that's gotta be a scary thought to everyone, including medical professionals. So these vaccines that came out at literally warp speed, is that a concern to you that a, a mutation of the COVID virus going forward in a month, three months, a year, won't be something that the vaccine can fight against? Um, yes, I, I'm not that concerned, but let me explain why. So mutation of virus is inevitable. It's going to happen. If you look at the flu vaccine, right? I mean, every year we add a different strain to that vaccine because virus will mutate. But these mutations are not a significant amount. I mean, we are reporting small amounts in, in the UK, uh, Malaysia had, Philippines had. So those mutations are going to happen. Those are expected. But at the same time, I'm not really concerned about uh, that little bit of mutation and worried about and worrying about this vaccine. I, 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 think, I think we are in a good shape. I, I, I'm not worried. Uh, but at the same time, oh, I, you know, the, what this mutation could, um, what it does, or it does is, it could make this virus a little more contagious. So I think we still need to go back to, in our original discussions about a simple human behavioral change, right? Yeah. We all have to be in this together. We all need to continue to wear masks, social distancing, hand washing. If we all do that along with this vaccine, we can definitely get to the other end of the tunnel that's brighter. Boy, what a, what a great thought on which to end. <laughs> Dr. Sunil Kumar, we really appreciate you. your time and may you and your staff at Broward Health uh, be healthy and safe and continue your good work. And I want to just give kudos to all my Dunwin intensivist physicians, the wonderful nurses and respiratory pharmacists, all of them together. Okay. I think we did this. So we are doing this. Thanks yeah, thank so much. Cheers. We echo if I had that. a head, I'd take it off to them and you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Miami-Dade's public health system is among the first in the state to take those pallets of vaccine under heavy security this week. The man at the top talks about who gets it and how and what's to come when we come right back. Welcome back. This morning, South Florida's vaccine supply gets a big boost as first shipments of the newly approved Moderna vaccine arrive. You saw that live just a little while ago. Following the first freezer-packed doses of the Pfizer vaccine, FedEx into hospitals this week. As you know, frontline medical professionals, those people most exposed to COVID-19 patients, were the first to get the shots. Carlos Magoya is chief executive officer at the Jackson Health System, joins us now via Skype. Carlos, great to see Good you. Morning. Good morning. 
Welcome. Uh, Morning, Michael Glenn. How are you guys doing? Well, Great, thank, thank goodness you. we are well, and I know you've already been through COVID, so we, we hope you are still enjoying a little immunity. Tell us about the mood at Jackson uh, after the first shots began on, what, Tuesday? Uh, I mean, this is really a moment of hope, isn't it? That is exactly right. We started vaccinating on Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And in the first four and a half days, I can proudly tell you that we vaccinated 12,000 healthcare workers in Miami-Dade County wow. from all sorts of different hospitals. So we're very excited about that. That first day was like um, uh, like Santa Claus coming down on, on Christmas <laughs> Day. So obviously everybody's excited over this. Uh, um, and, and really, if anything, uh, the challenge that we have is communicating with the population out there, the community, as to when is everybody else going to get it? Because obviously they're saying, why are the healthcare workers first? And frankly, we're, we're driven right now, as you know, by directives both from the federal government as well as the state as to giving this to the healthcare workers first. You know, that you're right. And so I pulled this morning that the state now has a dashboard of who gets it, when, and in a running total. Uh, for anyone who wants to see it, I just posted it on my Twitter feed, incidentally. So um, the, the numbers are really interesting, Carlos, because all of the big centers of the state, Broward, Dade, uh, Orange County, Orlando, Jacksonville have thousands of doses. There are counties that have no doses and nobody being inoculated. Is, is that worrisome since COVID knows no borders, really? Well, what, they, what they've done, Glenna, is really use, uh, as they call it, the Pfizer Five, which is the five main hospitals around the state, which is uh, Shands in Jacksonville, Advent in Orlando, Tampa General, uh, Memorial, and us, uh, as the ones to be able to give it out. Obviously, we're fortunate enough because Miami-Dade County, as large as we are, geographically, we're pretty centric. So we've all been working well together. And you know, as, a, as hospital systems, we've all been working together. So we've been able to get that out to all the healthcare workers in Miami-Dade County. Uh, the, part of the reliance, this is not 100% of the healthcare workers with the Pfizer. We're hoping now with uh, Moderna coming sometime next week, that that will help supplement the Pfizer vaccine. And we can make sure that all healthcare workers throughout the entire state, including the rural areas, will get it. Because obviously, the next level is, is about 175 other hospitals that will get the Moderna vaccine um, starting sometime next week. We're expecting it to receive it sometime Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, but obviously no one knows until it gets here. Yeah, and just a, a little note here, uh, we are all learning, that, of course, that the Moderna vaccine doesn't need to be stored in the sub-freezing temperatures. It just needs to be refrigerated, which makes it a lot easier for smaller hospitals, uh, clinics to get it and distribute it, right? You make a great point. That's part of the issue that we had with uh, Pfizer. You had to have special equipment, and obviously those five hospitals I mentioned did have that equipment. Others do too, but it was, uh, it's a much more of a challenge. So they this uh, Moderna will be something that can be uh, stored in every in every hospital, um, probably in the country, but at least throughout the state as well. Uh, Carlos, let me let me ask you. Uh, the CDC issued sort of a recommended order in which people should be vaccinated. The State Department of Health did that. The governor weighed in on it. What about Jackson? Did you at Jackson Health System create your own order of vaccinations? How are you doing it? No, we did not. We uh, we have been given specific instructions, both from the CDC, the federal government, and the state, as to how to first give it. And obviously, the first was healthcare workers, which is what we're doing today. Uh, and frankly, after that, we really don't know for sure. I know they're talking about first responders. They're talking about over 65 with comorbidities. 
but we don't have the answer to any of those things at this point. So all we're doing is we're, we're not making our own decisions. We're just executing on the directives we're getting from, yeah. from the government. Well, to follow up, if I can, what about firefighters, for example? I have read that 85% of the first exposure uh, in this country to people who are sick, when you call 9-11, a firefighter, a crew is going to show up here. I mean, those firefighters need to be vaccinated. Well, that's exactly right. That's why they, they've said it all within what they call phase one. 1A was the healthcare workers, 1B was going to be first responders, and 1C was going to be people over 65 with comorbidities. We know about the healthcare workers. Even though that's what they've been telling us, we don't have the specific directives until they, they tell us. So we're, we expect sometime middle of this week uh, to receive uh, the directives as to what to do next. And we believe it will be first responders next, but we really are not sure what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. And I, I think there's some un uncertainties about how many come in a shipment, when the shipment comes. There's a lot of variables there. So can you explain, Carlos, the, the shipment itself, since everybody needs uh, from Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, a second shot 21 days later, do you hold back some of the supply to make sure that those people who have the first vaccine get the second? Or are you just giving everything out and doing a Hail Mary because you know a, a second shipment is going to be coming in in time to get everyone the second vaccine? Well, it's it's not totally a Hail Mary, Glenna, because <laughs> part of the conversation now, not directed by the government, but directed specifically from Pfizer. Pfizer has given us the guarantee that we will get an equal 20,000 allocation uh, 21 days, or not really 21 days because it's really 15. The, the, the goal is between 17 and 21 days after the first uh, vaccination. So uh, we've been given that, that that they have gotten a go ahead from the federal government to send that back to the same hospitals. So we feel really comfortable that we will have that. And we've been given the directive to get those out to all 20,000. And we're very uh, working uh, very hard at getting that uh, other 7,500 left to be out to other healthcare workers. And we expect that to be completed here in the next uh, few days. Yeah. So yes, we, are, we, we have given out the we are, the plan is to give out all 20,000 on the, on the first vaccine. Yeah. Carlos, let me ask your opinion about something that just occurred to me over the weekend and preparing for this conversation. Uh, you know, when you go vote, you get a sticker that says, I voted. Would there be some value for distributing to people who get vaccinated a little pen or something they could wear, which obviously indicates that they in fact have been vaccinated. Would that sort of reassure people? That, you know, Michael, that's a great idea. Uh, we're actually, everybody's getting a card that says that, but I think something that they can wear be important. One of the other things we've done that, uh, that we started here at Jackson was we got nine of our employees volunteers, some of which are doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers uh, in that nine, that not only we videoed when they actually got vaccinated, but we, they've also been videoing themselves every day, uh, day one, two, and three after, huh. to show everybody what symptoms, which none of them had any symptoms, to be, to be frank with you. And of the 4,500 employees of Jackson and UM that we've vaccinated ourselves, we've only had two people with allergies that had some minor reaction, and the moment we gave them Benadryl, it went away. So the bottom line to this is, we have seen very little reaction from the vaccines, although what, one of the things we want to make sure, not just for healthcare workers, for the entire community, is to educate them on what they will find from right. the symptoms, because a lot of people are afraid of what those symptoms will look like. And it's most likely 
the, the biggest uh, symptom that we've seen is just a pain in your in your arm once you get vaccinated, but not much of anything else at this point in time. So uh, we uh, one of our goals is to make sure that it, we educate as many people as possible in getting comfortable. So, uh, remember that their herd immunity environment is 70%. That doesn't mean that we have to have 70% vaccinated. If you, ask, if you take that estimate that about 17 to 20% of the country has already had uh, COVID, like you talked about me having some immunity, we probably need to get somewhere in the 45 to 55 percentile to get to that herd immunity. So the sooner we get there, the better. And the only way to do that is to educate the community on how uh, important it is for them to get vaccinated. And real quickly, just following up on that, there there were some people we were hearing, some of the healthcare workers who were iffy uh, at first mm -hmm. about whether they would get the vaccines or not. So now that it's going so well, has that changed at Jackson? It's changed a lot. Uh, you know, the surveys that we originally did, about 87% of our doctors and residents uh, were willing to take the uh, the vaccine. When it came down to the nurses and other techs, the number was about a third. Uh, but now that they've seen what's going on, we have had many of those other people, a third meaning right away. And by the way, another third saying they would take it, but they wanted to see how everybody else was doing. So that second tranche right now, a lot of them have come up in that we've seen a lot more people getting vaccinated because they feel comfortable as to what everybody's doing. And they've, and they've seen their fellow employees uh, getting in and, and getting through okay, and, and now they're, they're comfortable about getting it done. So yes, it's a, it's a comfort zone uh, that gets there, and uh, it's a little bit of time. It's part of the education process. It's yeah. all encouraging news. Carlos Magoya, CEO at Jackson, always good to speak with you. Thanks for your time this morning. Merry Thank Christmas you guys. to you. I love your background, the fireplace, <laughs> the Christmas tree. It looks so cozy. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Take care, Take Carlos. Care. All right, next one of South Florida's newly elected state senators takes a seat at our virtual table <laughs> for questions. Anna Maria Rodriguez when we come back. <clears throat> One of South Florida's newest state senators is already racking up leadership positions for 2021. Ana Maria Rodriguez was elected to represent State Senate District 39, that is South Miami-Dade, Monroe County. She previously served in the State House of Representatives and before that for eight years as a member of the Doral City Council. She is a Republican and a mother, I believe, of four children. She joins us now via Skype. Uh, Senator, good morning. The no sleep good senator. Good morning. <laughs> Team no sleep. Good morning, Gleda and Michael. Thank you for inviting me today. No, uh, we're so we're so Perfect. glad you're here. Uh, senator, you won a solid victory November 3rd, 56 percent of the vote. Now you are, you know, a, in the catbird seat, as it were, in Tallahassee, where Republicans control the legislature. What are you going to do with this power, such as it is, your one of 40 senators, but what are your top priorities? Well, uh, one of my top priorities is actually working very closely with our, our newly elected uh, commissioners and mayor um, to help with the septic to sewer conversion. Um, I know that this is something that we've been uh, fighting for for a long time to get our fair share of revenue from the state. And so this is something that I'm going to uh, continue fighting for um, moving forward. I think one of the strengths that uh, we have uh, in our delegation here in South Florida is that we are a bipartisan, uh, very strong bipartisan delegation. And when we go to Tallahassee, 
uh, frankly, you know, it's not like Washington, D.C., where everyone's infighting and people don't get things done because of their uh, partisan uh, differences. We actually work very well together, um, not just in South Florida, but around the state uh, to make sure that we get things uh, done and, uh, and accomplished for Florida. And that's a very good thing for Florida. You know, Senator, you have a record, unlike freshman senators, other freshman senators, you have a record to look back on in the state house, in Doral, uh, particularly in your first term and the only term in the state house. Give us a sense of what your most proud accomplishments are. What are those topics? What did you do in the votes that you took that you accomplished? Well, one of the, the things that um, that I accomplished my first and only term, as you said, in the in the Florida House of Representatives, was bringing home uh, nearly uh, $7 million in revenue for, for projects. And these are projects that affect every aspect of our life here in South Florida, whether it was uh, transportation, uh, water quality, uh, medical uh, projects. And so uh, those are all things that, that make a big difference in, in everyday's, uh, everyone's everyday life. And so those are just some of the things. Um, I actually uh, co-sponsored or I was the main sponsor in the House for a uh, native language assessment bill, which I sponsored uh, with a Democratic state senator here from Miami. The bill didn't get much traction, but um, I think as you know, as you know about me and, and I think many of the viewers know, um, I, I don't work in a silo just with my Republican colleagues. I, uh, I try to support uh, bipartisan legislation and I've offered myself uh, on many occasions to, to be an example of getting things done again for the right reasons and not necessarily for, for partisan politics. Well, reaching across the aisle is a great strength, and we hope you continue to do it. Uh, Senator, let me ask you about education funding. You have been a strong supporter of education funding for traditional public schools, but also for charter schools. Explain to us where you stand on funding for both traditional schools and for charters. Well, that's a great question. Uh, my children actually attend uh, public schools here in Miami-Dade County, um, and I think it's important for us to strongly fund our public school system. However, um, I think it is important for people to have the choice of whether or not they want to send their children to a uh, traditional public school or a charter school, or for that matter now, we're seeing a lot of people um, sending their school uh, you know, through virtual schools. Um, and so I think it is important um, in, in our country and in our state to for people to have choices and to find the best education option for their children. And so um, in my experience, I've, I've supported funding for our public schools. Um, we have excellent public schools here in our community. Uh, but again, I think it's important uh, to also make sure that the charter schools have the resources that they need, because I think competition is good. And I think charter schools have actually helped public schools up their game and make their uh, performance actually better than it was previously. Senator, I have to ask you, what boils down to an ethics question? You were in a uh, Florida Senate race and there were two others. And in total, there were shill candidates now under criminal mm -hmm. investigation that were planted mm -hmm. in those races. Uh, your campaign actually shares a campaign treasurer with the shill in another race. In your race, that shill candidate at the NPA would not have made a difference. You had a resounding win. In others, not so much. Did you know about that? Did you even suspect what was going on? And, and please do weigh in on, on what you think about this gaming of the system. Well, that's a great question. Um, I actually did not know. I, I never even ran into um, that opponent. Obviously, I did um, share a few debates with my Democratic opponent. So um, as you said, I worked very hard and I won with a resounding victory. So even if 
that person had not run in my race, um, I, I still would have won by, by a very strong margin. Um, I think that if you look back uh, at previous um, election cycles, for example, in 2016, I believe, um, in this, I think you're referring to Senate District 37, which is the one that, that has had a much closer margin. Um, in, in 2016, there was a third party candidate in that specific seat. And it just so happens uh, that the Democratic candidate won, which, is, which was the incumbent, um, Jose Javier Rodriguez. And so during that election cycle, nobody even mentioned or, or, or even talked about the fact that the I, Democratic I you, candidate but, had but run. We did, mm-hmm. But we didn't know. And I had gone back. I actually talked to that person. And you're right. This, And that's why the question is more because you talk of being bipartisan, you have such a track yeah. record. You know, every, there's high yeah. hopes. You're, you've got chairs and vice chairs. I, I want to allow you to talk to voters on this mm-hmm. program and what you think of that happening and is there something you might do to stop it and make elections more fair and transparent well i am a a tremendous supporter of transparency my my track record has always shown that and i will continue to be a a supporter of of transparency uh but specifically um to my race and and to the other candidate in the other um, senate district uh race that was that you're referring to um i had no knowledge of that and again it, it was something that you know as of Right now and in current law, uh, third-party candidates are are allowed. Moving forward, can that change? I think absolutely. I think everything will be on the table for discussion in our during our next uh, legislative session. But as of right now, um, this is something that's occurred historically throughout many races, um, and sometimes it, it it works in favor of one party, and sometimes it works in favor of another party. Um, but I I don't know. Again, I don't know those individuals, so I cannot speak to what their intentions were filing for those seats, um, nor you know what their what their purposes were. State Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez, we are so glad to have this chance to speak with you. Last time I saw you was in a parking lot at the Kendall Regional Library. It was about 90 degrees. You were handing out campaign literature. Nice to see you in a calmer circumstance. And please come back. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great. Roundtable is next. Stay tuned. Ordinarily, the period around Christmas time is not much of a newsmaker. Things quiet down, but we don't want to say anything is ordinary these days in the era of pandemic. And it is not. We have plenty to talk about on the roundtable today. And with us on the Skype boxes, we have Ed Pozzuoli, attorney with Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale and a former chair of the Broward Republican Party right there on top. Fernanda Mondi heads Ben Dixon Amandi International polling firm in Coconut Grove and is a consultant to Democratic candidates. It is great to see you both. Welcome back. Happy holidays to you and yours. Happy holiday, everybody. Fernand, Ed, and just in the interest of full disclosure, Glenna and I would like to say Ed and his very nice law firm, Trip Scott, sent a beautiful gift basket, which the entire newsroom has enjoyed, Ed. That was very generous. Except I'm taking the uh, wine. Right, it is the holidays, Michael. We need as much cheer as possible. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Fernand, let me ask you first, weigh in here. Governor Ron DeSantis, um, uh, who we had invited to be on the program, said he would and then backed out. Uh, he uh, doesn't much like to ask answer reporters' questions these days, which is his right but he's refusing to take calls from all these mayors in Miami-Dade County. Uh, uh, Mayor, um, uh, you know, Daniela Levine-Cava, 
Francis Suarez, uh, you know, Mayor Hernandez and Hialeah. I mean, it's really, what do, you, what do you make of this? What's going on? Well, it's shameful. It's disqualifying. It's malevolent conduct by uh, a governor who simply does not care to provide information to the residents of Florida over the greatest disaster that Florida has ever faced, this pandemic, which has now killed over 20,000 Floridians, Michael. We have 1.2 million people that have been uh, diagnosed with this, and the conduct of the governor is reprehensible. As you alluded to yourself, even Republican governors like Carlos Hernandez, the mayor of Hialeah, uh, the mayor of the city of Miami, Francis Suarez, another Republican governor, he will not discuss things with them. That's why you have had to come on and give editorials in this broadcast denouncing Governor DeSantis. That's why uh, the Miami Herald and the Orlando, Orlando Sentinel had to sue Governor DeSantis, and you know, it makes me feel bad for Ed Pizzoli, who's not gonna have to twist himself into a pretzel to defend the indefensible. Yeah. Well, we, we know he's taken some heat, but let's have Ed Pizzoli. Ed, you know, explain from your point of view, why is the governor acting the way he is, and why won't he talk to the mayors who really want stricter uh, rules on COVID-19? Well, a couple things, Michael. I think it's important to know that Florida has actually fared very well compared to other states that took on a totally different method. If you look at New York, Illinois, California, you know, Florida, the number of deaths, I mean, it is a serious thing. I don't want to minimize the impact of COVID. I mean, you know, whether or not we should, the protocols, I mean, we opened our law firm after we were allowed to under certain protocols. We took it very seriously. And no one is saying that. What we are saying, though, is that, you know, there's still a constitution, Michael, and we and we need to be able to have people earn a living and keep the economy open and all of the things that people enjoy. This isolation that some of those other states have had, like New York and California, have they have not fared any better. In fact, New York has fared worse. Over almost twice as many people have died in co for co due to COVID in New York with the same basic uh, population level while they closed and shut down and destroyed small business all across New York City. Now, if you were a minority business owner in New York and you were forced to shut down by the government, to me, that violates your constitutional rights and no one, no one forfeited uh, or set aside or froze or voided the Constitution uh, uh, just because of this pandemic. Okay, so, so let me, let me just, um, can, let me just point out. who is understanding the balance between the constitutional rights of people and, and the government forcing them to lock up as opposed to living their lives even under the risk of COVID. Yo, Ed, so I want to point out the obvious here because it's not just the people in our boxes, but our entire community and state is so divided about what the governor is doing based on your politics. If you take politics out of it, here's the question, Fernand. The, the governor is doing messaging. That's what he's doing. By lack of message or what his message or the medium mm -hmm. of the message, this is the message the, the leader of this state has decided is appropriate for the state. That is his way. So my question to you is, do you agree or disagree that the leadership of the state has a responsibility to put out a message to get to his goals? To Ed's point, Florida, as, as spiky as we are at the moment, is doing better than most of the other uh, states in the country. So, so is there a valid reason why the governor might be taking the lead on the type of messaging in this? 
Well, it's because he's a coward. He does not want to face the scrutiny that comes from the questions of people like you and Michael and reporters around the state and the country that ask these basic questions. Think of it this way. More people die in Florida every single day because of COVID than any hurricane that has come through the state. Yet if there were a hurricane, the governor has no problem being ubiquitous around the television dial. Well, because he knows the politics of this are horrible, he knows his conduct has been reprehensible, if not criminally liable, he refuses to do what this state was founded on in the tradition of folks like Ruben Askew, Bob Grant, and others. Provide transparency for data and information and lead. Lead with the public interest at heart. You even have, Glenna, members of the Florida Department of Health that work for and were appointed by this governor uh, calling out his abhorrent conduct here and his unwillingness to lead, and it's because he's a weak, ineffective, and in this case, malevolent leader. All right. Well, Ed Pizzoli, I know you disagree, but let me phrase it this way. The governor, Ed, is making a libertarian argument. He is saying government should not dictate to a free people, people with constitutional rights, that they should wear masks, that they you know, can only eat at a certain time or a number of people. And he is saying people instead should act responsibly on their own. But then you look at the pictures. I mean, the Sun Sentinel had an article the other day showing, you know, bars and restaurants, people right next to each other without masks. People, unfortunately, are not acting all that responsibly in South Florida. And the mayors want to do something about it. Why shouldn't they be able to? Michael, if if someone denied your right of freedom of the press, you would be up in arms. If someone denies someone else's right, if the government comes down and forces a restaurant to close after a small business owner put all of his earnings and his life savings at stake and closed them, that is the definition of government tyranny. And so when we talk about these things, the governor, all he is saying is, look, I took an oath under the Florida and U.S. constitutions to live up to those constitutional ideals. No one is saying, the governor is not saying to take appropriate precautions and be responsible. And in fact, the balance in Florida is working. So, I mean, is it working? Look, I, I, my heart goes out to the 20,000 people, Floridians who, who, who perished because of COVID. But in New York, it's almost 40,000. And in California, it's 25,000. And so, look, the idea that you and I can drive on 95 and get into an accident, that is we're more likely, I'm more likely to get into an accident and have a serious injury on 95 than I am to die of COVID at my age. Now, well, can you know, we, can we take a quick break? We, 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 we need to take a quick break. It's a TV thing. Those who are most at risk, and that is the elderly. And he was right. The policy was correct. Ed, and hold on. We're going to take a break. Ed. Sorry, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. It's tough on Skype. Welcome back on this Sunday on This Week in South Florida. We are joined on the roundtable with some two old friends, Fernand Amandi of Ben Young Dixon friends. and Young Amandi friends. and Ed Pizzoli. Um, Ed, let me ask you, as you well know, as a good lawyer, no constitutional right is... Uh, simply, uh, you know, free. I mean, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So they're not absolute. Uh, local government, however, when they find a business like the Wharf Restaurant 
in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, that are not enforcing mass mandates, uh, code enforcement people are closing them for a day or two days. Uh, that's within their rights, isn't it? I mean, that's not violating uh, anything. That, in fact, is ensuring, you know, good health and good law and order. Michael, what we're doing is we're taking small business and turning them into scapegoats instead of trying to find a solution to allow them to survive under very difficult conditions. And so what you've got is, you know, this idea that that local government, the science doesn't, by the way, you know, translate that only 2% of the transmissions of COVID are shown or directed at, at restaurants. The rest or majority of them are individual gatherings at people's homes. So we got to begin to enforce those like we did in Oregon. I mean, my gosh, I mean, what happened to freedom, Michael? What happened to that? Well, I don't know where you get those statistics. They sound frankly a little suspect to me, but I'm not an expert either. Fernand, weigh in on this, would you? Yeah, I would. I mean, I don't, I don't know where the statistics have come from either. I've never heard of Ed's statistics, but I will tell you this. Every country in the world has had to face the problem of COVID. Yet the worst problem is here in the United States. In other countries like New Zealand, South Korea, elsewhere, they're back to normal. Those businesses are thriving. What Ed is saying is a false choice. This idea that we're trying to shut down small business, no. This same Florida government that prevents smoking in public restaurants, that doesn't allow you to text and drive, that forces motorcycle drivers to wear helmets for the public good and the common good. That is why we have these elements of what government does to protect people. But Ron DeSantis has shown over and over, he's not interested in protecting people. He is interested in being a sycophant of this president of the United States, Donald Trump, who refuses to accept the gravity of the COVID situation. One last point, the other incoherence of the governor's policy, he shut down the state after much pressure and much delay appropriately in May and in June. And yet now, Michael and Glenna and Ed, the numbers are much worse. The community spread is much worse now, but he refuses to do what other states and other Republican governors are contemplating doing, which is to protect the residents so that we don't have to spend Christmas Eve in our houses this year and hopefully not next year. So where does then where do, by this government? Where does then the the personal responsibility come mm -hmm. in? Because that's that's what the governor is asking for. Where where is that? Where does that piece of the puzzle fit into that? It, need, it, needs, it needs to come in. I mean, it needs to be a significant part of this. But Glenna, the one thing that we haven't spoken about is the isolation that is occurring in New York that is effectively driving a thousand people to relocate to Florida. The mental health issues, the drug abuse issues, domestic violence issues, the learning losses when schools are closed, particularly for those who are less fortunate. Those are also victims of COVID, and those have to be balanced against the other policy discussions that you, that, you know, I guess Ramon would like to see. I actually think Ron DeSantis has shown a great deal of courage, despite the fact uh, of, of the cost to close down businesses. All right, we're going to, Ed and Fernand, forgive me, we're going to jump in here. We're out of time. Always lovely having you two on. Uh, <laughs> you disagree so eloquently. We. We like it. Thanks very much and Merry Christmas. And before we go to break, I just wanted to mention that we had hoped to have Governor DeSantis with us today. We had high hopes that he might. Uh, he could not in the end, but hopefully maybe next week, the week after, open invitation. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Among the things we are following today, the U.S. Senate is going into talks on the stimulus. We expect there may be a vote on that today. The House is standing by for that. A lot going on in Washington. With that, we thank you for being here with us this hour. Remember, we're online 24-7 at local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Merry Christmas.